0: The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Well, you guys can grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you tonight. As you can see, I am not six foot five, I am not Pastor Skip, but I'm stoked to be with you. Uh, he's traveling right now, he'll be back shortly. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to opening God's word with you. Tonight, how many of you have been enjoying the Bible from 30,000 feet so far? Pretty awesome, pretty cool. I love it. I love the Bible from 30,000 feet because we we get to survey so much of Scripture. But I also just like the theme. I like airplanes. Anybody else like airplanes? Yeah. All right. Cool. I love airplanes. I, I'm a, my son and I. My, my son is two and a half years old, and we have this in common. Where We can be in the middle of a conversation. I could be in the middle of a conversation with you, and if I hear an airplane, I can't help but look at it, I'd try to find it and see if, it's, see if it's a passenger jet, see if it's you know, delivering boxes. FedEx is my Amazon package on its way. I hit the order yesterday. It's supposed to be here within 24 hours. I just love airplanes. I like flying. And for some of you, you might be like, oh, I fly so much, I hate flying. I'm not into it. I just have to do it because of work or whatever. Um, I still get giddy when I get on an airplane. I don't love traveling. I don't love the entire experience. You know, standing in line, searching for the right price ticket, standing in line to check your bags, standing in line at, at TSA. Maybe maybe you have TSA pre-check and you're just cooler than I am, or you've got Global Pass and but you travel internationally and you've, got to, you've still got to wait in lines at customs. Then you've got to wait at the gate. There's a whole lot of waiting. But the second that you get on the plane, the second when I get on a plane, I get really excited still. And here's a little fun fact about Matt. I'm a window sitter. Do we have any window sitters out there? Yeah, see, I thought we were more rare than we are. I know that the aisle has more leg room and I know that the aisle seat Gives you better access to the lavatory and you don't have to nudge people out of your way and ask them to. But I love the window seat. For me, there's something about seeing this world from six miles above it that gives you a perspective that you can't get from the ground or even from a mountain peak. That's obviously the whole idea of the Bible from 30,000 feet is that we get to, to study entire states of Scripture and pick up on themes that we may otherwise miss. Listen, as much as I love flying, there is one thing that I never want to see on a flight. A parent boarding the plane with a toddler... I'm just kidding. I am that parent that boards the plane with the toddler and the one-year-old. So we've got two, I guess, toddlers that we take flying. The one thing that I promise I never want to see on a plane, you never want to see on a plane, is one of these things falling from the ceiling, dropping down right in front of your face. These masks, they are a sign that you are in trouble. Anybody want this mask? This is a free giveaway. Jason, you want this mask? Hooray! Masks. Masks for all my friends. You get a mask and you. Nope, only one. Um, That is a sign. If you see one of those, it's a sign that you are in trouble. And I've been curious about how these work. When I board a plane, you know, they've got like the microwave and the coffee maker and they've got all like the trays and the drink carts and they've got all that stuff. And then as you board the plane, you look usually to your left and in that first overhead bin, there's an oxygen tank that is about yay big. It's like a foot long. It's not, it's not a very big oxygen tank. And and I, I was always wondering like, is that really enough oxygen for all of us? If if this plane, if this cabin depressurizes, is that enough oxygen? And I discovered it's not. They only give it to the good-looking people. (laughs) Now, what I discovered as I started doing some digging is that above every one of our seats is a little canister connected to these masks. It's about the size of a Coke can. And when those masks fall, you're supposed to pull it tightly. And when you pull that mask tightly... A little pin pricks that canister that has sodium chlorate in it. You didn't know we were going to get into physics and all kinds of cool stuff tonight. I guess that's not even physics. I, didn't, I don't know much about my science. But let me tell you about these canisters. I do know about these canisters. So a pin is released, it punctures the canister that has sodium chloride and it has an iron powder and oxygen is actually created in that chemical reaction so that you can breathe in and out. That way they don't have to store tons of oxygen and find space for all of these oxygen tanks, which are also explosive if you did store all of that oxygen. The oxygen is actually created right there in a chemical reaction above your head, which is crazy. And after that mask falls and that chemical reaction takes place, Morpheus leans forward and says, Is that really air you're breathing? A little bit of a Matrix joke for you. I guess I'm like 20 years late on that one. 1999, that came out. Yikes. Well, what causes those masks to fall is a loss of cabin pressure. A loss of cabin pressure. Obviously, as you know, when you board an airplane and as you uh, begin climbing, ascending to 35,000 feet or 30,000 feet or some planes even higher than that, they have to pressurize the cabin so that we can breathe. They pressurize the cabin so that it's it's equivalent to us breathing at about 8,000 feet. So that's like you know, I think we're about a mile up, another 3,000 feet um, from Albuquerque. They pressurize the cabin, so it's as if you were breathing at an elevation of uh, 8,000 feet. So what's interesting is as soon as that, that little mask falls, you have 18 seconds, they say. They say you have 18 seconds of what they've termed useful consciousness, which really kind of like sounds like an insult to me. It's like, well, yeah, that guy is conscious, but how, like, how useful is his consciousness? But they say that there, you have 18 seconds before your body enters a state of hypoxia where you start lacking all of this oxygen, you become delirious and start laughing, and all of the other passengers think you're crazy, and then eventually you just pass out. And you can die if the pilot doesn't dip down below 10,000 feet. So as long as the pilot's flying underneath 10,000 feet, the cabin pressure is is sufficient for your lungs to be able um, to, to, to breathe regularly. And uh, and one little in, one final interesting thought: you guys are like, man, get get on with it. Enough about the masks. You only have about 10 minutes of oxygen on those things. So those little canisters. It's like, man, if, if you're at 35,000 feet, we've only got 10 10 minutes. Luckily, he doesn't have to land. He just has to get below 10,000 feet. So now that I have thoroughly terrified you from ever boarding a plane again, let me just assure you with just two helpful facts that of the passengers who have been in an airplane crash, you have a 95.7% success rate of surviving. So that's pretty good. 957 su- Uh, percent success rate of surviving. So that's that's pretty good. And then also, the likelihood of your cabin losing its pressure is incredibly rare. They say the odds are about one in 54,300. That's at least what one website told me, one, 54,300. So it's pretty rare that you and I will ever be on a plane where those oxygen masks do fall. However, in this life, it is incredibly common that we find a loss of cabin pressure. We find ourselves in increasing pain and difficulty and pressure and trial. And you know this as well as I know this. This isn't something that I have to build a case for and convince you that at times life is difficult and that life is painful You and I can probably think of times in our own life where the pain was so great that it was difficult to breathe. Maybe for you it was a diagnosis. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Maybe it was the loss of a job. Maybe it was something that wasn't as extreme as that. Maybe it was car problems. Maybe it was kid problems. Maybe it was a perpetual sickness or pain that you've had your entire life. And the doctors say you're going to have for the rest of your life. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. And my hope would be that tonight you're encouraged and that you find hope through this season. And maybe you're not going through a season like that. Maybe you've recently gotten out of a difficult season, or maybe you're going to be going into a difficult season soon. And my hope is that you would be better prepared before the battle comes so that you can withstand and so that you can have, be equipped to carry through that difficulty. So tonight, the title of this message is Loss of Cabin, pressure. And we're going to look at three primary passages. We're going to look at three different stories. We're going to look at James's prescription for us. We're going to look at Joseph's perspective and Jesus's priesthood. But before we go any further, let's pray. God, you are the God of all comfort. You are the father of mercies. And I ask that tonight, that we would be able to see that you have a purpose even in our pain. God, I ask that as we open your word together, that you would speak to your people. I think of that song that we often sing, So Will I. It says that as you spoke, as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies were born. And as you speak, a hundred billion creatures were formed. Well, God, you're speaking to us tonight. And so we ask that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us. And we ask that that as you speak, we would experience your truth in a powerful way that affects us longer than the time that we were in the sanctuary, that we would experience truth that will carry and stay with us through our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I said we're going to look at is James's prescription. And this, this first point, this first area that we're studying is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time tonight. You can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. And we read, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think for us, there are three lessons in these four verses. And the first lesson is that the cabin will lose pressure. I told you that the chances earlier of being on a flight is about 1 in 54,300 that that cabin will lose pressure. But it is a guarantee in this life that we will face pressure and that we will face pain. Notice this is James and he's, he's the brother of Jesus. He's the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And notice what he says. He says, count it all joy when you fall into trials. He doesn't say, count it all joy if you fall into trials. He says, when? Speaking to the fact that this is just a given for human existence, that all of us will face trials in this life. I don't know if you've ever been to a birth, I mean, besides your own, but it's pretty crazy. And there's a lot of pain on both ends, both the, 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 the mom, and if there's somebody holding the mom's hand, there's pain. And then for that child that is being born, they come alive screaming at the top of their lungs. And if they're not, the doctor starts smacking them, so they start screaming. And I think that that's, almost, that's a pretty fair introduction to life on earth, that we come out screaming and in pain, and it's not going to be the last time that we cry, and it's not going to be the last time that we experience pain. In this life, we will have trouble. That's just the reality. We'll, we'll probably have it at work. We'll probably have it at home. We see it in the news everywhere that we look. We see it on Facebook. But isn't it helpful to know that it doesn't have to be a surprise, but that we can be prepared for trouble when trouble comes? comes. And Peter told us this in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not think that it's strange. Christians, don't think that it's a strange thing concerning this fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I was reading this morning. I'm going through uh, Mark and, and Jesus says, in this life you will be hated, Mark 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end sh- shall be saved. And it's worth noting that, Paul, or that, that, that James here says when you suffer, not if you suffer. And then furthermore, it's worth noting that he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered, now that word in the Greek is, is diaspora. And, it, and if you remember back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Stephen had just been martyred. He was the first Christian who ever died for, for his faith. And then it says immediately after that, all of the Christians in Jerusalem began to scatter. They began to, to go all throughout the region and all throughout the empire that they were scattered. And so James, who's the leader kind of in, in Jerusalem of the church... He's writing to people who are essentially refugees. He's writing to displaced people who aren't in their homeland, who are scattered throughout all of the region. And they're facing a very unique persecution because he says, notice it says to the 12 tribes, meaning that they were Jewish people, right? And then he says brethren, meaning that they were Christian people. And so they were facing a unique persecution and a unique form of racism that a lot of other people weren't facing. Because as a Jewish person, the Gentiles didn't want to have anything to do with them. And then as a Christian, the Jewish people didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so they were isolated people scattered in places that weren't their home. You know, on an airplane, there are multiple things that can cause the loss of cabin pressure. I I, I didn't know this before studying for this. But uh, the engines on on an airplane actually pump air into the fuselage. They pump it into the cabin so that we can breathe it. And so if the engines go out, the oxygen goes away. The other thing that will cause... um, loss of cabin pressure is if the fuselage is no longer sealed. So if like a window breaks or if a door flies open, then all of the the, the pressurization goes away. And James points out that there are various ways, that there are many different things that can cause us pain, that can cause us trial. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And I want to point that out. Because some of you may be going through physical trials. Some of you may be going through spiritual trials. Some of you may be going through mental trials. Maybe you're going through all of the above. But James says, hey, this is applicable not just for the persecuted church. This is applicable not just for people who are suffering in one way. Because the truth is we don't all suffer the same. There are various ways that we do face difficulty in this life. They may not all be to the same degree, and they may not all be in the same spectrums, but we all will face trials. David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And you guys know this, after studying through the Old Testament, you know that Moses fled and was was in the wilderness for 40 years. You know that Elijah, after having a tremendous victory, fled and he was isolated in a cave and he was begging God that God would take his life because he was isolated and he thought he was all alone. You guys know that David hid from his father-in-law. He was running for his life because the king, Saul, was after him. You know that Job... Lost all of his family, all of his wealth, all of his health, all at once. You know that Paul, jumping to the New Testament, that he was shipwrecked, that he was beaten, that he was left for dead, that he was imprisoned. Can I just say that that kind of encourages me? that the heroes of the faith, that the heroes of the Bible, the people that we look up to, that their lives weren't all great. Because when I look at my life, I realize, man, there are a lot of things that, that, that I have trouble with. There are a lot of things that I suffer. There are a lot of things that I'm anxious about. There are times where, like Elijah, I'm dreading existence. One, one person, I think it was A.W. Tozer, said, Whom God would use greatly, he will wound Deeply, And so when we suffer, we can see that we're not the only ones that, that, that are going through it. We can see that some of the, the, the people that God used most greatly in life suffer deeply. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said that he, I think he, he had seen, um, I forget the exact quote, I think that he, that he had seen uh, the prisons in hell, that he, that he felt so depressed at times, that he struggled with anxiety so much, that he had seen the depths of hell in his life. And yet God used him so greatly to the point that people are still reading his sermons. The second point that I would bring out, the second lesson that we can learn from this passage is to breathe normally. And that's exactly what they tell you when you're on an airline and those masks drop and the safety demonstration comes on. They, they, they say, you know, adjust your mask and once you affix it to your face, breathe normally. Which, by the way, like, if you're flying in a piece of metal six miles above the earth, and you have to breathe through a piece of plastic, the last thing I think I'm going to be doing is breathing normally. I'll probably be hyperventilating. I'll probably be breathing faster than I can think. But they say breathe normally. It seems illogical. And James tells these persecuted Christians, he says to them to do something that seems so illogical. He says, I know that you guys are facing trials. I know that you're away from your home. I know that you're in a distant land. But I want you to, to count it all joy. It's like, James, are you insane? Have you lost your mind? That doesn't make any sense. Are you a masochist? Like, do you like pain? It seems so illogical, but he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, let me just say this because I, I want to maybe apologize for people who have used this verse to hurt you when you're already down, when they use this verse to kick you when you're already on the ground. James isn't saying, Oh, you're suffering? Well, get over it. Put a smile on your face. Fake it till you make it. He's not coming down on them hard. He's giving them a tool for their pain. See, like an airplane that rises above the earth and you're able to see a perspective that you wouldn't be able to see if you were on the ground. God gives us his word to offer us a perspective that we wouldn't be able to see without it. When we're stuck in the midst of our pain, we need to rise above by looking in God's word and seeing what he would offer us. And and that's exactly what James is doing. He's offering these hurting believers a perspective that they did not have. The key word here is count. Count it all joy. This word count is a financial term. It It means to take inventory of or to evaluate, to take stock of something. In fact, Paul uses this word in Philippians chapter 3. I'll read it. He says, I also count all things loss. I count, I consider them. I determine that all things are loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So to count something, what james says what paul says is to evaluate and identify to identify the value of your suffering versus the value of your sanctification to see which one has more weight I don't want to be clear. James isn't, James isn't saying, hey, you got to feel, when, when you're suffering, you got you to feel joy. You got to feel happy, guys. You got to plaster a, face on, on, a smile on your face and say to everyone like, oh, brother, if I were any better, there'd be six of me. It's like, hey, if you're going through hard times, be honest. But also take a step back and evaluate what you're going through and what opportunities there are for joy in it. So why, why in the world could we count trials and suffering and difficulty as joy? Why could we count it as joy? The next thing that they tell you on an airline, right when that mask drops, they say, secure it to your face, breathe normally, and note that oxygen is flowing even if the bag doesn't inflate. So the third lesson for us, if you're taking, taking notes, is note that oxygen is flowing. I imagine if I'm 35,000 feet up in the air and I strap that thing onto my face, like I said, I'm going to be hyperventilating, I'm going to be freaking out, I'm going to be getting anxious, but they say breathe normally because oxygen is Flowing now. Now it may not seem that way to me, like it's flowing. I may not see the bag inflate. My eyes may not perceive that that I'm actually benefiting from this. But they assure me, they assure you, no, you are getting oxygen. You are benefiting from this. I promise you, this isn't nothing. And I want you to know that whatever you're going through, that you can benefit from it, even. If it doesn't look like it, James says, knowing that the testing of your faith in verse three, he says, the testing of your faith, it produces patience. When you're going through something difficult, when your faith is tested, it produces in you patience. And he says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing says, if you want to be a more perfect person, if you want to be complete, if you want to be all that God has made you, then you've got to have patience. And there's, there's no shortcut to patience. You can't get patience from reading a tweet or listening to a podcast or reading a book and being like, oh, and I've, I've attained patience, and therefore I've attained maturity. There's no shortcut to patience. It would be self-defeating. That's the whole point. So James says, in effect, that, that the purpose of this pain can be used to learn patience and make you perfect. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to look at you and be like, that guy is a number 10. He's rated one scale, one to 10. He's a 10. He's perfect. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless. It doesn't mean that you're never going to fail. That's not the idea of this word. The word perfect here is telios, and, and it communicates this idea that you are mature, that you are complete, that you are whole. And in fact, Tim Mackey, he's got a PhD in Hebrew studies. He says of this word, um, and he's done a bunch of Greek research as well. He, He says, it means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs you've received from Jesus. So being perfect, again, has been translated mature or whole, it means that you have integrity in the way that you live. When you say that you love God, your life demonstrates that you love God. When you say that you have faith, your life demonstrates that you have faith. This is the whole purpose and theme of the book of James, by the way. James says that, that faith without works is dead that faith without works is dead and so he makes the point over and over and over again that if we have faith it's going to be visible and so concerning this he says if you want to be whole if you want your character to actually match the words coming out of your mouth it doesn't come from just reading a book it comes from suffering One of the questions that, that I've kind of like had to wrestle with as as I've been as I've been preparing for this is whether or not my comfort has a higher value than my calling and my character. That's just something that I've had to personally wrestle with is, is when I count my suffering, when I count my life, do I, do I place my comfort higher than I place God's call on my life? Do I place my comfort higher than, than the character that he wants to develop in me? I was talking to uh, our missions pastor, Sess. You guys probably know him. And he was telling me this. He said, oftentimes the prayers that we pray would have kept Joseph... Out of prison. Oftentimes, the prayers that we pray would have kept Paul out of prison, where Paul and Joseph had tremendous fruit and saw great salvation because they were in prison. And so oftentimes we're focused on, God, just keep me safe, God, keep me safe, God, keep me safe. Let me help, you know, help me to get this 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 uh, raise at work. Help me to, you know, I want this new, and, and there's nothing wrong with praying those things. But if they are, are high, a higher priority than seeing other people's salvation, then we need to count. We need to reevaluate. We need to examine what our priorities are. A few of us went uh, and did a cardio workout this last week. We went to the UFC gym, and a few of the people that know me just gave me like a look, like, "Whoa," because you need to know something about my uh, the background of my exercise routine and my gym membership. It's non-existent. <laughs> but we went to the UFC gym, which is like super intense, and we did this cardio thing. And like halfway through the warm up, I thought we were done. And, and uh, my, my, my muscles hurt so badly. And uh, it, it was a rough time, but, it, but, but it, it was a good time. By the end of the workout, because, you know, UFC, you're not just, like, lifting weights. You're doing all these punching bags and everything. And so they had us do this one exercise where I think there's, like, six or seven different punching bags in front of you. And you've got to punch them 20 times each. And then, you know, so 20 times 60 and all, or times six. And then, and then you go and you run. And then you, you wait a few seconds. Then you do it again. And you do several reps of this. And so, like, by the end of the workout, I was literally resting my head on a punching bag. And I was just, like, touching the punching bag. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. And uh, and I, I hoped nobody saw me, but it turns out there were like photographers there after and, like capturing how intensely I was working out. The reason that I bring this up is the next few days I was incredibly sore. I could hardly like lift my coffee to my lips. And uh, you and I know that in order to build muscle, we have to break muscle. That in order for us to get swole, or in order for anybody to be like, man, does that guy need a band-aid? Because he's cut. like. (laughs) In order to gain muscle, we have to break muscle. And the same is true of our spiritual maturity. The same is true of our character. And in order for us to be complete... We've got to suffer. We've got to go through pain. It's got to hurt because it's going to make us more mature in Christ. It's going to make us look more like Christ. Second thing that I said we were going to look at is Joseph's perspective. We, we kind of examined what James said and what his prescription was to us. But now we want to look at Joseph's perspective. And you don't need to turn anywhere. I'm just kind of going to remind you of the story. You guys are already so aware of, of, of what happened in Joseph's life. But you know that he was one of 12 brothers. And that his father loved him and his brothers hated him. And he had these dreams. And he knew that God had put this promise in his life that, that, that his brothers were going to bow down. And that eventually like, his dad was going to bow down. And, and, and he had these wild dreams and he shares it with his brothers. Which didn't go so well. Um, his brothers ended up like kidnapping him, throwing him in a well, and then they realized that they could make better profit instead of just killing him. They could make make a little bit of money. They could get a little side hustle going if they sold him into slavery. And so they sold him into slavery. He was exported to Egypt, similar to the Christians and James who who were taken out of their country. He was exported in Egypt, he was bought by a man named Potiphar, and, and, and he worked as a slave in this guy's house, and eventually he worked his way up, and, and you know the story that, that he ended up like overseeing all of Potiphar's goods and all of Potiphar's house, and it says that Potiphar never even checked in on him because he was so good that he didn't have to like constantly ask him, hey, did you do your job? Hey, did you do your job? Hey, did you do your job? And we're told throughout the whole thing that, that, that God was with him. But then Potiphar's wife comes and and she did think that he needed a band-aid because he was looking cut, like that he needed some tape because he was ripped. And she starts hitting on him and she's trying to get him to sleep with her and and continually and continually and continually she's trying trying to get him to, to, to be with her and, and he just keeps resisting. And so she falsely accuses him of raping her, attempting to rape her. And so he is falsely accused. He's sent back to prison. He ends up interpreting the the cupbearer of the king's dream. He ends up interpreting the the baker of the king's dream. And he's completely forgot about. He tells the cupbearer, hey, when you go back to the king's palace, remember me. Let him know about me. Remember me, that I could be brought out of this prison, and this guy just completely forgets about him. So Joseph suffered so much. Eventually, as you know, God brings him out because the cupbearer does eventually remember him. Pharaoh has these crazy dreams about cows eating cows and crazy stuff, and so the cupbearer is like, "Oh yeah, this guy named Joseph." And so Joseph gets out of prison. He interprets the, the king's dreams, the Pharaoh's dreams. And he ends up being like the second in command of the entire known world. In all of Egypt, he's the second in command. Nobody has more authority or power than Joseph, other than the Pharaoh himself. And what eventually happens is that the very brothers that sold him as a slave stand before him and ask for food, they ask for wheat, they ask for sustenance. And they don't know that it's Joseph, but, but he is in a place where he has the opportunity to hurt the people that hated him, to hurt the people that hurt him. And you know what Joseph does? He eventually tells them, he loves them, he gives them food, he gives them money. He doesn't even make them pay for all the goods that they came to buy. And he, he tells them this, he has this perspective. Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people. And he had, yeah, you can clap for that. What's wild is he, he had no idea while he was in prison, he had no idea while he was in the well that he was going to end up with the power and the position and the platform that he had. But he was faithful to God through it all, and God put him in a position, and the, mo- the most wild thing is that, that Joseph reflects Jesus so well in this, that all of the suffering that he went through, he went through so that he could end up saving the very people that sold him as a slave. All of the pain that he went through, he went through so that he ended, could end up helping the people that hated him and hurt him. By the way, this is the goal of suffering in our lives too. See, Joseph never looked more like Jesus than when he served the people that hated him. And we will never look more like Jesus than when we love our enemies. When we're going through suffering and we decide to demonstrate love instead of hate. See, the goal of our suffering isn't to have an awesome underdog story and eventually get the retribution on our enemies that maybe we think that they deserve. But the goal of suffering is to mature our character so that we look like our Christ. And when we have the opportunity to take vengeance, we decide to love our enemies. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8.28. You guys know Romans 8.28. That is one of the like, most quoted verses. Anytime somebody's going through something difficult, we always want to remind them. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose which is a fantastic promise, but separated from verse 29, it's almost just a cheap platitude. It's something that that we offer people and, and it gives no further explanation without verse 29. You've got to read it in its context. Read this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. He also predestined, get this, God defines what is good to be conformed to the image of his son. See, the good is that we look like Jesus. It's one thing to say like, oh, brother, all things are going to work together for good. It's like, okay, I am going to get the raise. I am going to get, you know, the new car. I am going to get, that's good, because that's what obviously I would define as good. But God says, no, the good is that you're conformed to the, the, to the image of Christ." The good is that you look like Jesus. And what better opportunity for us to look like Jesus than when we're going through suffering? What better opportunity for us to look like Jesus than when we're being persecuted and we choose to love our enemies? This is where we shine, Christians, in the difficult days of this life. See, nobody bats an eye when they see a smile at Disneyland, happiest place on earth. Everything is going fine. There's a trash can every 40 feet, no trash on the ground. You have all the fun rides. Sure, there might be a few lines, but you've got tremendous smells and and fun things to eat, and people are wearing Mickey Mouse ears, and, and of course you're smiling there. But when you have a smile on your face when you're in prison... When you have a smile on your face and and you decide and you choose joy when you're going through difficulty, people will notice that. People will say, wait a minute, this context doesn't make sense with the look on that guy's face, with a song that's coming out of her mouth. I got to visit Africa with uh, the youth group here, I think, in like 2008, 2007. I don't know. But um, while we were in Africa, we actually went into a few different prison systems. And um, I think like six or seven different prisons we went into. And at first, I was like absolutely terrified. I was like, okay, like going into prison at all kind of seems a little scary. But going into prison in a country on a different continent, like, oh. Uh, and, uh, I, and I went in. and I was so pleasantly surprised because what I found – is that even these, these people who had been falsely accused, even these people who had been wrongfully sentenced, they chose in the midst of the worst conditions to choose joy. And I literally, I witnessed like 50, 60, 70 people, prisoners, singing to Jesus. They would bring like a cajon in, they'd bring a guitar in, and they would just worship Jesus in some of the worst conditions. And what I found out is that it started as a small group of Christians that had been put in prison, and they they gave their lives to the Lord, and then they started singing, and and that other other prisoners were like, wait a minute, the the government has wronged you. You're not even supposed to be here. What in the world do you have to rejoice about? And they said, well, I have this Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he set me free, and, and maybe I'm I'm a slave here, maybe I'm a prisoner here, but I'm actually free because I'm in Christ. And so they would share, and their joy began to affect the other people that were in prison with them. And it became a platform for them to preach the gospel, and many were saved, which is an incredible story. And the same thing is true in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are put in prison and they choose. It says that they're praying and that they're singing hymns in the night. When it was darkest, they were shining the brightest. And and soon after that, an earthquake happened and all of these prison doors were were flung open. And the jailer was about to to kill himself because he realized, oh man, if everyone escapes, that's on me. And the Roman government, they're going to just end me. And so he's he's about to end his life and, and Paul says, "Hey, don't do it. We're all here." And he being in prison and having that joy that had been demonstrated time and again to the other prisoners, to the jailer, and he choosing not to hate the person that was his guard for prison, but choosing to love him changed that man's life. It changed his whole family's life. It changed the city. And so Paul realized something, and James realized something, is that their suffering wasn't just about them. It was a platform that God could use to reach others as well. well we've seen James's prescription and Joseph's perspective, but I want to look at Jesus, Jesus' priesthood. If there is anyone in the Bible or on this planet that knows suffering, it's Jesus. Isaiah says that he was a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrow. Psalm 22 prophetically speaks about Jesus and it says, he says, I am a worm, not a man, despised by the people. Jesus was on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was a man of sorrow. He understood suffering. And because of that, Hebrews tells us that he is the perfect high priest for us because he recognizes the pain and the difficulty and the temptation and the trials that we go through. And so he is an adequate representative of us to God. And being God, he is an adequate representative of God to us. In Hebrews 12... We're told to look unto Jesus, who is the author, and get this, the perfecter. Remember we were talking about that word perfect earlier, that you will be made perfect. That he is the author, that he is the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's not a greater instance in history where somebody has suffered more than the cross of Christ. Not only was it physically excruciating, but in the moments that Jesus was on the cross and as he breathed his last, he was separated from a union with the Father that he had had for all of eternity. And Jesus didn't try to escape his suffering. Jesus didn't run from it. He prayed the night before If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that mankind could be saved, let this be taken away and let let me do that other way. Let me take plan B, but not my will, but your will be done. And notice in, in, in Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured that suffering because he evaluated the suffering that he was going through, And he decided that that the outcome of his suffering was far greater than the suffering itself. And so he is the perfect and prime example for us to look to. You know, biblical hope is always tied to a person, not a circumstance. In the Old Testament, they had hope not because their circumstances were great. Oftentimes their circumstances were not great. And they didn't have optimism necessarily that their circumstances would just improve. But their hope was always tied to the coming of the Messiah. Their hope wasn't in, oh man, you know, one day this pain is going to be over and one day we're going to get out of this captivity. Their their hope was always tied to the coming of the promised one, the anointed one, Jesus. And our hope after the cross is also not circumstantial. Our hope isn't tied to, well, maybe things will get better. Our hope is tied to the person of Jesus looking back at the cross and realizing that he bore our shame, that he bore our iniquities, that he bore our sin. So that we could have life in him. And our hope is not just looking to the past, but it's also looking to the future. Looking to the person of Jesus in the past, looking to the person of Jesus in the future, looking to the person of Jesus in the present. But get this, the book of Revelation, the very final chapter of the Bible, Jesus has quoted three times. John gets this revelation and, and Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly, Revelation 22, 7. He says, behold, I am coming quickly, Revelation 22, 12. And then he says, surely I am coming quickly, Revelation twenty-two twenty. 20. And so we have a hope In the person of Jesus, that we'll be reunited with him one day. And our hope isn't just like, oh, paradise. Our hope is we're going to be face to face with our Redeemer, and we know that our Redeemer lives, and we're going to be with him. You know, it's interesting. Anytime that Jesus repeats himself three times, it's worth listening. Like I said, I'm a parent, I've got a two year old. Um, Oftentimes, I find myself repeating myself three times. Don't hit your sister, don't hit your sister, don't hit your sister. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Eat your food, eat your food, eat your food. No fireworks in the microwave, no fireworks in the microwave, no fireworks in the microwave. I've not had to do that yet, but sometimes I hope that I'm also repeating positive affirmations. I love you, I love you, I love you. But Jesus repeats this phrase three times, meaning it must be significant. The first two times he says, behold, like open your eyes, see, listen. I'm coming quickly, I'm gonna be with you. But the final time he says, surely, as if to say, if there's any doubt in your mind at all, I guarantee I am coming quickly and we will be united together. So Jesus ends the Bible with this thought that we have a reason to look back at the cross and have hope in him. We have a reason to look forward and hope for his return. One final thought, one final thought before we land. You know, the final thing that they say when you put on your mask and everything, the whole demonstration is that after you've secured your mask, then you can help your neighbor beside you, the person sitting next to you. If you've got a kid, make sure to secure your mask before you put your mask on your kid. And it's always like, oh, that's a little selfish, isn't it? But uh, no, it's not, because you need to make sure that you don't enter that state of hypoxia before your child does, so that you can then help your child. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I don't know about you, but this just gives me so much encouragement because if the whole goal of going through pain is just to get through it and become just a little bit better or to be a little bit more mature, then it it, it can kind of feel like, oh, I don't know if I just even want to go through that at all. But when I know that there's a purpose, that I can help the very people that are suffering around me because I've also suffered, it helps me to know that there's purpose for the pain that I face. And Paul David Tripp, he's like an excellent author and pastor and theologian. But, but over the last three years, he's suffered greatly. He's had diseases. He's been in and out of hospital hospitals. And he wrote a book called Suffering. The title is just one word, Suffering. And he says this. He says, remember that your suffering doesn't belong to you. Man, can you imagine being selfless even in your suffering? He says, when it seems that my life is anything but good, God picks it up and produces what's very good in the life of another. So I would just leave you with this. If you're going through something, if you're suffering a trial, take a step back, maybe with a friend, and consider how God may use it to shape your character and consider how God may use it in the life of someone else. Father, we do ask that you would fill us And help us to see, you've already filled our pain with purpose, but we ask that, that we would be able to evaluate and see that what you're allowing us to go through doesn't compare with the weight of glory that you're going to reveal in us. And Jesus, I ask that we would be more selfless, that we would look more like you which is a tough prayer to pray because maybe that means that that more difficulty will come in order for us to look more like you. But we ask that we would place our calling above our comfort. God, we ask that we would place the character that you want to build into us above our comfort. And Jesus, we ask, we beg that as you set us ablaze and as you help us to pursue you and as, as you help us to step back and to see things as they are and to trust you, even if we don't get the whole picture, as you help us to trust you, God, I ask that you would transform the workplaces that we're in, that you would transform the people that we interact with. God, I ask that you would transform the city in which we live because they see people who are going through difficulty and aren't throwing in the towel, but they see people that are going through difficulty and still choosing joy and choosing to praise you. And so I ask that we would be a city on a hill. I ask that we would be a lamp on a lampstand, not put under a bushel, but in the darkness that we would shine bright for your sake and for the sake of the lost pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 Feet.